Thank you for joining us for Revive the Drive, a ministry of the Bethany Fellowship of Churches. We live in a world where time is a precious commodity. One of the avenues for reviving our souls is the necessary commute to and from the many places our schedules take us. As the wheels of the car begin to turn, join our panel and set the wheels of your mind in motion as you consider the significance and impact of theology on everyday life. Let's listen in as our pastors talk theology. Welcome to Revive the Drive. Uh, my name is Kendall Kaufman. I'm pastor at Lexington Community Church, and this is the continuation of a special series of podcasts on conversations regarding the Reformation, and we'll be talking here in just a moment about key people of the Reformation. I've got three here who are joining me, Scott Burkle from East White Oak Bible Church. Welcome, hey. Scott. Hi, Kendall. We've got uh, Daniel Bennett from Bethany Community Church. Welcome, Daniel. Hey, thanks, Kendall. And also Kevin Souter from Newcastle Bible Church. Kevin, welcome. Thanks, Kendall. It's a joy to be here. Well, this will be a, an interesting and exciting session we've got here. Probably it will be the session that might ring most familiar with uh, listeners because we'll be talking about key people of the Reformation. And certainly two of these would be household names, uh, Martin Luther and John Calvin. Uh, but then there might be uh, two that might not be such household names in Ulrich Zwingli and John Knox. But we'll be talking about their influences on the Reformation and I want to begin with a quote that I heard recently by a professor of Reformation history. He said this, we have to make the past strange uh, before we can really learn from it. And his point was that we we got to become so unfamiliar with it so as not to gloss over it. Hmm. So hopefully in this time, I'm hoping that we can uh, make some of these men a little strange to us in that it might whet our appetites to really see why they did what they did and, and go back and research and even uh, want to know more about them. Uh, well, we, we learned from the last couple of sessions, the close of the 15th century and the opening of, uh, sorry, the close of the 14th century and the opening of the 15th century was ripe for change. Uh, the Reformers were not the only ones that saw corruption in the church and were calling for change, but for some reason, uh, these men that we're going to be talking about really stood out in their influence. And the first one I want to mention is Martin Luther in he really jumps to the front of the line here. So my first question I wanted to discuss here, especially as it relates to Luther, is what was so special about him? Uh, what did he bring to the table that other people who wanted reform in the church weren't bringing? Uh, what launches Luther to the front of the line? I think one of the key words that I think of when I think of Martin Luther is courage. Uh, he was not a man who was so bold that he didn't feel it. I mean, the, some of the descriptions of him when he was uh, at the uh, Diet of Worms, you know, and all that, describe his anxiety about things. And yet, when he knew something was true, he held on to it mm -hmm. with a tremendous courage. And that that speaks to me in circumstances where I have fears, you know, uh, where I know what the Scripture says, but I know it won't be received well. It, am I going to be courageous enough to speak mm. it? I I really appreciate Luther's uh, boldness and courage, despite his his own personal uh, his personality that wasn't necessarily as somewhat described. You know, sometimes I think he gets uh, uh, a little misunderstood that like he's just this bold guy that doesn't care what anybody thinks. I, I think he cared, but I think it didn't matter compared to the word. It didn't matter. Mm. So. There, there is a. Yeah, I like the word courage, and there was a. There was an ability for him to 
to uh, learn the truth and then hold to it with courage, but also he had he had the ability to express it eloquently, like like a, a bold elo- not not eloquence in terms of flowery speech, but just a kind of a the ability to use simple, earthy mm-hmm. phrases to to communicate conviction in ways that that the contemporary person could understand and say, yeah, I, I, I that resonates with me. Yes, who's funny? Yeah, he mm-hmm. he could he he had he had a. Um, uh, a sharpness yeah. to his to his language that captured uh, people's attention. Uh, one phrase along that line, he says, "A simple layman armed with scripture is to be believed above a pope or council without it." Yeah. That's really that cuts to the core of it, doesn't it? Very conscientious, you know. So I think that's what drove his anxiety and his um, troubledness. Because while he was courageous, he was also kind of deeply troubled with doubt and anxiety constantly, constantly conscientious to the Scripture's high demands, and yet mm-hmm. recognizing he was not able to live up to those yeah. in, in any kind of realistic way. So if I can kind of throw a, a lob pitch up here and maybe bring this uh, Luther's life and what we learned from him down to a little bit of a personal level for us here. So of all of all that we know of Luther, all that he preached, all that he did, all that he wrote, what is something significant that stands out in your mind that maybe you've even been able to use in, in your ministry or has affected you as a as a pastor? I have a little booklet called Martin Luther's Quiet Time. Hmm. Um, Martin Luther's barber asked him a question while he was cutting his hair and shaving him. He said, uh, how do you meet with God every day? And Luther said, I'll write something down for you. And he wrote down a list of the things he went through. And every day he went through the Ten Commandments, each line of the Lord's Prayer, with things to confess, things to thank, things to praise the Lord over. I still go back to that, uh, just in terms of my personal devotion with the Lord, and Luther still speaks. That's really encouraging. I know for me personally, this is perhaps more personal than you wanted to, to ask, I don't know, but several years ago, as I was wrestling with uh, what did I believe and how did that match with my church and and where was I to go, I, I read Luther's Bondage of the Will, mm-hmm. and and that that God used that you know treatise from Luther almost five hundred years <laughs> earlier to really mm-hmm. drive me back to the Word of God and say what does the Word of God teach as it relates to my salvation and to as it relates to my uh, sinfulness and, and the the responsibilities of my sin and the effects of my sin, I should say. And then just more recently, you know, our churches uh, preached through Galatians, and so uh, Luther's commentary mm-hmm. on Galatians is is very very instructive. Yet today, yes. uh, very helpful. I just finished Galatians too, and uh, mm-hmm. found the same thing to be true. Kevin, it's a great yeah. study. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah. I think uh, just a brief mention of my own life for Luther, I, I genuinely impacted me as his view of Scripture, and especially when he came to that great Reformation text in Romans one seventeen. The way he described what he was doing there, he said, I beat upon Paul wanting to know what he said, mm-hmm. wanting to know what he meant. Brothers, that's how we yes. go to the Scripture, isn't that's it? Good. We want to shake it. We want to worry it like a dog worries a bone <laughs> and know what yes. that yeah. word says. Yes. Uh, that's just always had an impact as... So he still speaks. He yes. still is echoing in our minds. Yeah. Well, another well, oh, another another thing that I would just add is that he really had a profound understanding of the justice and holiness of God mm. even before he was a Christian. And so he felt that when in when it says that 
in in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. He's like, are you kidding me? I already know the righteousness of God. I know His justice from the Ten Commandments. Yeah. I know them from uh, all these all these other my own sinfulness and all he that. And now you're telling me the yeah. good news is that God's righteous? Mm. No way. And that's when he got that wonderful insight: the just will live by faith. He says it's like the the gate was opened and all of paradise was yeah, open to amen. me. Mm. Amen. Well, I want to move a little bit chronologically here. Instead of uh, grouping Luther and Calvin together, I want to group Luther and Zwingli together. Uh, they were more contemporaries there. In fact, uh, they were only about a year apart in age. But we'll take a little journey here south from Germany, where Luther was stationed, and go to Switzerland. And um, Zwingli took his first position as a priest at the age of 22, and he also served during that time as chaplain to the Swiss troops. He, he saw his fair share of war, and that might come in later to some discussion here of of just uh, the type of man he was. Uh, but his most prominent position was as a priest in Zurich in Switzerland, and he took that position at the age of 35. And here is uh, his pulpit really became the catalyst for change that would end up earning uh, the city of Zurich, the nicknamed the Wittenberg of Switzerland. Hmm. Um, and there's there's one inscription I'd like to throw out here and, and talk about for a moment here. It's at, it's at Zwingli's Church in Zurich uh, today, and it's a little memorial plaque there that reads, The Reformation began here on January 1, 1519. And that was the date when Zing, Zwingli actually shocked his congregation. What he did is he dispensed with the traditional lectionary, uh, how the service would be done, just kind of this rote uh, marching through it. And he began preaching through the Gospel of Matthew. And that seems like such a small thing for us today. I mean, as pastors, it's it's no thing to just say, well, what, what book are you preaching? You just finished Galatians, or I'm in the Gospel of Mark, or whatever. But, but then it was a big deal. So what was so important about that move, and what role did the Scriptures play in stirring the Reformation fires in Switzerland? Stephen Lawson has an article on Zwingli, and he mentions that uh, whenever Erasmus publishes his Greek uh, New Testament in, was that 15? 16. 16? Yeah, 15, so 16. Zwingli devours it. He memorizes Paul's epistles in the original language. And so he, according to Zwingli, he says, before anyone in the area had ever heard of Luther, I began to preach the gospel of Christ in 1516. I started preaching the gospel before I had even heard Luther's name. Luther, Luther, whose name I did not know for at least another two years, had definitely not instructed me. I follow Holy Scripture alone. And so that that conviction, okay, what does the text say? What is the gospel communicated by God? That's what I'm going to proclaim. That, that by God's grace, was happening simultaneously in at least two different places there. That, that just thrills my heart because that's a testimony to God's providence and his sovereign working in his church to bring her to purity in a time of tremendous darkness. Two different, you know, leaders in the church, Luther and Zwingli, but together being brought by the Spirit of God to say, "This is the Word of God. Here I must stand. Here's where I'm going to preach." That is that is tremendous encouragement for us today. God will build His church. Yeah, it is His church. I don't think Zwingli's intending that to be, and I right. got it. Right. I'm the guy. I got it. He's right. saying that this came by means of Scripture. Yes. That they were independently arrived at the same truth. And the, and so he it's is credible. wanting yeah. to say the Bible speaks, you know, yes. which yeah. gives us hope that, and I think we already have this confidence because of God's word that it wasn't just Luther arriving at something, but this is something that God has preserved His gospel message throughout yeah. church history. Yeah, it wasn't a creation as much as it was a rediscovery. Yeah, good. 
And think about those opening passages in Matthew too. I mean, he he certainly was a <laughs> he wasn't looking for um, how to build bigger churches by topical sermons, right? I mean, he, he opened <laughs> the book of Matthew with genealogies. Yes, and yet that's right. the Lord used that to spark yeah. the fires. That's there wonderful. In I think it also says something about the power of Scripture that when he was thinking about how is it that I take the gospel I have now understood to people, what's the way I can do that? It's by the systematic proclamation of God's Word rather than going in some kind of uh, artificial uh, Mm -hmm. fashion through the Bible. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, I don't want to cut Zwingli short. I'll just uh, maybe tell the listeners, go and study why his statue uh, has uh, his depiction both bearing a a Bible in one hand and a sword in the other, and uh, maybe you can learn a little bit more of the life of Ulrich Zwingli. I do want to move on to Calvin because I want to give some time for him. Uh, this is our third person we'll be uh, discussing in this session here, and, and we remain in Switzerland for a topic on John Calvin, but we move a little bit southwest, a couple hours' drive from Zurich to Geneva, and again, just using Luther as a reference point here, uh, we meet Calvin, who's about 26 years younger than Luther. Um, Calvin was a brilliant pastor, teacher, and writer, probably best known for his book, The Institutes of the Christian Religion. He started writing that book at the age of 27, had about 140 pages initially, uh, and then over the years in revisions, it grew to 750 pages, and he affectionately referred to those institutes as his little book. (laughs) (laughs) Just a couple of words there, right? 750 pages, but um, maybe I'll just uh, throw another personal question here to to you guys. What what was it about uh, Calvin's book, especially his institutes maybe here, that had such a profound and lasting impact on the individuals and churches of his day, and then, and then even for your own life, how his theology or his theological works affect you personally or even in your ministry. When I read the Institutes, I'm, I'm amazed by their crystal clarity. He is not an overly complicated theologian. He's mm-hmm. not compiling a bunch of uh, gobbledygook words. He's very clear. And I just love that about him. I go to him quite often when I have a question, think, wonder what Calvin has to say about mm-hmm. this or if he has something to say about it. And then the other thing that just stands out to me is uh, his statement that the human heart is an idol-making factory. Yes, yeah. That has really touched my own heart to think about the idols of my own heart. Yeah, the, you know, so I, I have not read through the Institutes to my shame. What? <laughs> I know. <No. laughs> I know. <laughs> So I always, you know, I, I've read through portions and I've, I've read them, uh, as I've thought about it, I've read them digested by others a, a lot, yes. mm-hmm. which yeah. uh, I think is, is not a, a good thing. But it, it does speak to me of the, uh, the, the means by which one person can, can influence others who can influence others. And as you look at even what we think of as Calvinism, uh, that was the influence of, of a person discipling others and then that, that, that movement continuing to grow. Yeah, he was also an expository preacher, which is, yes. is encouraging too. So you think about how you know he was run out of town, comes back. I think it's two years later, opens up the pulpit. Exact, exact next passage. Yeah, I, like, <laughs> I I don't think he had the same sense of humor as Luther, but there had to have been a little bit of a you know. <clears throat> as I was as saying, I was, you know, as I was saying, I think I left off here. So. So that, that's, that's an encouragement to, to just continued faithful ministry of proclaiming the word. Yeah, yeah and his and his commentaries, which are based on the sermons that he gave, right? Uh, 
you would think that they would be filled with some kind of uh, long expositions of systematic theology, but they're not. They're just actually really clear interpretation of the text, not really getting into a lot of theology, Mm. per se, as much as he is just trying to exposit the text. Yeah. Yeah, Calvin was not just a great systematizer of theology, but he was a great pastor. And I think the pastoral uh, instruction from him comes through his writing and definitely through his commentaries, his preaching. And so that's that's something that's really encouraged me is his pastoral strength of shepherding the flock of God among us. And I like how you guys mentioned it. I mean, it, this puts Calvin— Maybe some people think in their mind he's such on a he's such a top shelf theologian. I could never read and digest what he's got here. But um, one of his great achievements certainly was to take those solas of the Reformation and put them into helpful, mm-hmm. clear mm-hmm. Uh, words that are digestible for our souls. We'll finish with John Knox. So here we'll end by taking another little journey, transporting ourselves north from Switzerland up to Scotland, and here we meet John Knox. Uh, he was about thirty years younger than Luther, and he was more of a contemporary of Calvin than Luther and Zwingli uh, was. But uh, in fact, Knox and Calvin sat down for a time as Knox went down to Geneva and spent some time with um, John Calvin and had some face-to-face time there. But maybe perhaps more than anything else, John Knox, I'll just say it this way, was certainly known for prayer, at least in maybe the the snippets or the sound bites that we remember of him. It was the Roman Catholic Mary, Queen of Scots, who said of him, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe. Hmm. And then maybe we know John Knox through this statement, give me Scotland or I die. Hmm. Um, how does that prayer maybe especially embody a representation of him and really all the reformers to that, to that degree? What a challenge to us as pastors today. Yeah. Do we pray such prayers for our own hmm. communities? Are our churches filled with a flame with that kind of passion? Uh, give us Bloomington Normal or I Die. Give us Peoria. Give mm-hmm. us Washington. Give us Deer Creek Mackinac. Give us Lexington or I Die. Uh, that is an important thing that we ought to consider well. Mm-hmm. Any other closing thoughts on John Knox? Yeah, just just that figure for the gospel. You know, he was... Uh, Sinclair Ferguson has an article on him where he, where he talks about how he wrote to the people of Scotland saying, hey, uh, don't don't compromise the gospel. He uh, reminded them, look, you're going to have to answer for the decisions you make before the judgment seat of God. And yeah, this is going to cost you temporally, but the eternal reward of being faithful to the gospel uh, is, is worth whatever, whatever cost you incur now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, may the prayer of all of us uh, listening to this today be just that prayer. Give Mm -hmm. us our city, give us our town, give us our our state and our country, or we die. Mm -hmm. We would have that kind of passion. May the fire of these men that we just learned of in this session um, burn in us as well today. So thank you for listening to the session and the key people of Martin Luther, John Calvin, Oryx Wingley, and John Knox. Uh, Have a blessed day. Mm